Hi, I'm Mara Webster with In Creative Company, and I'm so thrilled today to be joined by Adam Conover, who is the creator, executive producer, and host of The G Word on Netflix with Adam Conover. And I was actually really interested in, in the initial journey in, in narrowing down these episodes and really coming up with not only what are the topics that we want to discuss, but also what are the topics that are going to really lend themselves to this format that are that are going to kind of like tell a really interesting narrative story to the audience that we can find a way to connect to them with. Sure. So, you know, this is a show about the United States government and all the ways that it affects our lives beyond politics, beyond the, you know, cable news, two parties, like the actual agencies that, you know, make up the government, the government's, you know, the single largest employer in the world. Uh, one out of every 16 American workers works for the federal government. It does an incredible number of things. And we wanted to do a show uh, breaking down what those are using comedy. So what we did was instead of doing an episode where, you know, every single episode is about a different agency, every episode is about a different part of American life and how the government affects those issues. So we do an episode on food, on money, on the weather, on disease, on the future, which is really an episode about technology um, and an episode about change. Our, our season finale is about how we go about changing the government uh, when we decide it's, you know, not actually working in a way that serves our interest. And a lot of the show is about that. It's not just positive stories about the amazing things the government does. It's also stories about the ways that the government, you know, can harm us or even kill us uh, that we might not be aware of and that we need to pay more attention to. Mm -hmm. And I was also really, really fascinated by what the collaboration in the writer's room looks like along with the research team, because obviously for a project like this, there's so many extensive details and facts that you're bringing to the table. Um, you know, and I know that from, from working on Adam Ruins, everything that, that research has always been such a huge component, you know, and you always have been really cognizant of making sure that you're not telling a story that you're not certain of, and you're not presenting facts that you don't have, you know, the wherewithal to back it up. And is it more that the writing informs the research that's done or the research is kind of informing the way that you're then shaping a story around it or a space in the middle? That's a great question. We always start with the research first in our process. Um, on this show, we actually, this is new for us, uh, not the way we did things in Adam Ruins Everything, but this time we decided to start with the researchers in our room first before the comedy writers began, just to break the stories, figure out what we wanted to talk about, um, figure out what our angles on them were going to be. And then once we had the first couple episodes, we brought the writers in and we started building those out into scripts as we started working on the episodes in the back half. Now, all of our comedy writers are also extremely well-versed in research. You know, they can read a study, they can read a, you know, a long-form work journalism uh, to figure out how to translate it into comedy. Um, but yeah, I mean, we're, we're, I think, sort of unique among the comedies on TV for having a very high-powered research staff. We have journalists, folks like that, um, doing, you know, really deep dives into what these questions are. Because the thing is, we're not just regurgitating things that you have already seen on television. We are trying to bring ideas and concepts, facts that have never been seen on TV before. And that means that we start by asking our own questions. Okay, what does the government really do? How does it really affect these issues? And then we go off and try to find the answers to those questions so that what we're bringing to the audience is really our own research process, our own investigative process, and to make sure that we're bringing them ideas that they have not heard before on television over and over again. 
And part of the process then is, is how are you delivering that information on screen? And there's a variety of different ways that information is presented. You know, we have you kind of hosting and, and talking to camera and telling us information. There's interviews with, with professional subjects in different areas. There's moments where there's kind of reenactments or sketches with other actors, um, you know, graphs and information that pop up on screen as well. And so how do you kind of delineate and distill down not only what is the information, but how do we want to present this particular segment, this particular subject? I mean, we, to choose how we're presenting the information, it's whatever's going to be most impactful for that particular story. So sometimes the most impactful thing is to go see it directly, to bring a camera crew to the place and see how the thing is done. I mean, so one of our opening segments from our premiere, uh, which is our episode about food, is about how you know, the USDA inspects every single piece of meat that you eat in this country. If you buy a piece of meat, it has been inspected by the USDA. And we talk about the giant numbers behind that. We show graphs, we say, you know, we, we produce billions upon billions of pounds of meat of all different animals. And then we say, how is it possible to inspect all of that? And the only way to really answer that question is to go there. And so we took a camera crew to a Cargill meat processing plant. It's the first time they have allowed camera crews in one of these facilities in well over a decade. And we uh, met the actual USDA inspectors who are on the line inspecting all of that meat. Uh, we met the veterinarians who inspect the cows. We saw what happens when there's something wrong with the meat and they put a purple dye on it to make sure that, you know, that particular piece of meat, that entire animal carcass can't be, you know, processed into food, etc. cetera. Uh, that is the best way to tell that story, you know, uh, to, to really show you straight from the horse's mouth as it were, and interview those folks. Now, there are other stories in that episode that are better told through a different means. We um, tell the story of how the USDA, through massive investment in agriculture, agricultural research, farm aid, saved the American farm during the Dust Bowl post-Great Depression years. And in fact, because of that investment, they created a massive increase in the amount of food production in this country. Food in America is now cheaper compared to our income than it is anywhere else in the world. World. Um, and, you know, food is some things are very expensive in America. Housing is very expensive. Medicine is very expensive. Uh, Health care, obviously. But food is actually a declining share of, you know, uh, the average household income, how much we spend on it. And that is because we have invested massive money over the last hundred years as a society, as a government, into lowering that price, into making sure we're able to produce more for less money. Now, that's also had huge knock-on effects um, because the kinds of foods we've been subsidizing, like corn and wheat and other bulk grains have created a food system that is very unhealthy, where we eat a lot of processed foods. Um, the government literally subsidizes uh, crops that create the least healthy foods instead of subsidizing, you know, leafy greens or fresh vegetables. We subsidize those bulk grains. Now, that is a huge story over the course of a century. And so in that case, the best way to tell it is to write it and distill it down into a very fast, funny, you know, four or five minutes and tell it via sketch comedy because we're able to cover so much more ground. That's not a story that's very effectively told by interviewing subjects directly. So when we're looking to tell these stories, we say, okay, what is the best way to get the information across and really stick 
in the audience's mind. And in many cases, especially when telling a complex story, comedy is the best way to do that. You know, there's a favorite line of mine. I'm going to I'm going to butcher the quote from but it's a George Carlin quote. It's in his book that he wrote Last Words right before he died. And he wrote something along the lines of that when people are laughing, their defenses go down. And that's when they're most purely themselves. And at that moment, you can plant a little seed of a new idea and it'll grow over time if you're able to do that. And so uh, I really took that to heart when I read that, you know, almost 15 years ago. Um, and that is what I've built my career on, using comedy to educate and inform. Right. And, and the comedy is such a great tool into also kind of distilling down a lot of this information for the audience. But there are moments where you also allow, you know, different emotion within it, you know, personal connections. Like when you're talking about health in that episode, you know, you talk about your personal frustrations with the fact that the country felt very left behind and, and not taken care of by the government before yeah. you then distill down the information of, of the how and why that happened. Did you kind of go into episodes knowing where you wanted to bring in a little bit more of, of that personal space and personal emotion, or was it about finding it on the day? Uh, it's both. Uh, thank you for asking. That's a wonderful question. Um, one of my goals for this show was to bring my own personal emotions into the show more. On Adam Ruins Everything, I played a character called Adam Conover, who was sort of a you know heightened parody of a television host. And there are many elements of myself in that character, and that character also went through emotional catharsis and crises, but that character was different from me. It wasn't myself personally. On this show, one of my goals was to share, here's how I actually felt um, in this situation. So yeah, at the beginning of COVID, you know, I felt abandoned by the government. I mean, you know, the example we use is we literally had, you know, people just banging on pots to support frontline workers, but those workers were using trash bags as PPE, the nurses in our hospitals, because they didn't have PPE. Uh, we were so far behind on testing. Um, when the vaccines came out, the rollout was so slow. Um, these are areas that we rely on our government and our government was not there for us in the way it should have been in many areas. And yeah, I, I found that, you know, to be personally very upsetting and uh, worrisome. And especially, you know, that was happening while we were working on this show. I mean, this show, uh, we were in our writer's room for one week before the shutdown happened. It was literally the Wednesday of our first week in the writer's room with our researchers and writers that the NBA season was suspended. And, and you know, for many people, uh, that was the moment when, oh crap, things are getting serious, right? They canceled the NBA season. That was Wednesday and by Monday we were writing everything on Zoom. So we were writing this show about the government at a time when our government was suddenly extremely important to us and we were like, where the hell is it? <laughs> All right, where is the government in this moment? This is like a Pearl Harbor sized catastrophe and our government is seemingly nowhere to be found. And so I was grappling with those emotions as we were writing the show. And so I put them into the show. Um, we have another episode about money where we talk about the aid given out um, after COVID and you know how that gave aid was given out unequally. I also have my own emotions about that. Um, and uh, the final episode of the of the season, Change, is you know starts with my own frustration about okay, hold on a second. I've done a great job, I hope, of sharing with you all these problems that the government has. But now, what the hell do we do about it? What 
What do we do? I mean, people are taking to the streets, protesting how, you know, our criminal justice system is hurting and killing Americans. And how do we actually change it? What is the next step? Um, and, and that came out of my own emotion of being frustrated by spending the last decade of my career raising awareness about issues, seeing the public become aware, and then seeing nothing change and saying, I now need to do more. I need to do more than just raise awareness. I need to actually figure out how we do something and create change in the world. Um, so, you know, by doing that, uh, I, I hoped that we would connect with the audience's own emotions, that people will relate to that and, and see themselves in that emotion. And even, even if they don't, they'll, they'll understand that this is how I genuinely felt and it'll connect them to the material more. And so, yeah, that was a really important part of our process. And, and you're bringing up there the final episode change. And, and that's the one where we also get to see you sit down for an exchange with Barack Obama, um, who him and Michelle are also executive producers through Higher Ground on, on the show. And what was actually really refreshing is that it wasn't just a conversation going, look at all the great things that, that have been done. You know, you even sit there and challenge him on you're a president who ran on change. And now you're sitting here and, you know, rightfully saying like change is very difficult. There's a lot of restrictions. It takes time, you know, but but it's that energy of activism that needs to kind of keep pushing it forward and creating momentum. And I thought that was a really interesting dialogue and was interested in, in kind of what led into the dynamic and, and delivery of what that conversation was going to be between the two of you. All the meanwhile, you're making peanut butter jelly sandwiches together. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, look, I I'm very grateful to be making this show. I'm grateful to the former president's company in wanting to make it with me. And they gave me extremely broad editorial independence on making the show. They said, Adam, this is your show. You know, we're gonna we're gonna share our thoughts from time to time, but you know, you are the final word on on what we on on what you know ideas this show is going to broadcast. And uh, they were really true to that and I really appreciated that. Um, at the same time, you know, I felt I had an opportunity to talk to the president about you know, honestly, the questions that I have had for him my whole life, you know, in 2008, when he was elected, that was a that was a big moment in my own political awakening, as it was for many people in America. You know, I was in my 20s. Here's a here's a president that is running on change on the kind of change that I as a young person want to see. Um, and to be honest, I was let down by the results of that political transformation, um, as I think many were. There are many successes. There are also many, many failures in many places where I felt we should have gone further. And, you know, I had heard what he said in response to this. You know, people would ask him that question before, and he would say, well, you know, it ta change takes time. The long arc of history bends towards justice and all that. And I felt, well, uh, I, ha I have to go further than that answer from him. You know, I have to get him to say to actually grapple with, you know, the the real question that I have when I hear that answer and I'm still unsatisfied. Um, I wanted to do that, not just for myself, but for so much of the audience who I, I feel like is maybe feeling similarly. And, you know, I, I was really happy that he was interested in entertaining that conversation. I had actually read his book and in his book, he said many times, you know, many people thought I should have gone further on healthcare or whatever other issue, but I felt that, you know, there are political realities and I had to make the best of a bad situation and I did my best. Um, and he says that over and over again. And I found that really fascinating that, that, you know, he would, he would be say, I'm aware of these criticisms, but you know, I did my best, made me feel like, uh, not that he's defensive, but that he's aware of that tension. And, uh, you know, I had questions for him based on reading that, you know, I, uh, what I wanted to ask was, hey, why should we accept 
those political realities? Isn't the point of a leader to transform political constraints, to widen what is possible? Isn't that what leadership is? Um, and you know, he went with he went there with me in that conversation. I pissed him off a little bit. I could tell because <laughs> he was like, "Oh my God, I, <laughs> what have I signed up for in this conversation?" But it ended up being a really fascinating uh, conversation. Um, that you know, the 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 thing he said that I was most interested in was, you know, he said, "When you're an activist, you can be uncompromising. When you're a politician, uh, you have to operate in a different way." And I asked him, you know, do you ever regret, like he, you started as an activist, as an organizer, do you ever regret going into politics? And he said, yes, which I thought was a very fascinating thing for, for a president, a former president to admit. Um, and uh, so, yeah, we, we really grappled with those issues in a, in a way that I'm really proud of. Um, you know, as a comedian, I can't sit there and just, you know, tousle his hair, right? And say, oh my God, it's so cool to be here, sir, right? Um, we, we have to have a little bit more uh, pushy of a, a little bit more difficult, a little bit more toothy of a relationship than that. And um, that's something that I'm that I'm really proud we were able to bring to the screen. I mean, and overall, with all of the interviews that you're doing with different subjects throughout the series, you know, they're really, really fascinating conversations. And I think also because you you create a space for the people that you're talking to when you're talking to two women who lost their daycare center because their business was too small to get COVID relief. You know, you're not sitting there saying, oh, well, like maybe if this had been different or this had happened, you're saying to them, what do you think that you would have needed? You know, how do you think the government should have responded to businesses like yours? And so I feel like that really opens up the conversation a lot more. Was it was it kind of always important to you going into those conversations to, to it be more about creating the space for them to tell the story that they want to and really just kind of following the lead of where they're taking Taking the moment? Oh, absolutely. I mean, Sandra and Claudia with that daycare center that, you know, had to close, that was providing an essential service to their community and closed because of COVID. And, you know, their total PPP relief was like $8,000, which covered less than a month of their expenses. And then they received no more and they had to close down despite the fact that a daycare is the most essential of essential services because people can't go to work if they don't have daycare. Um, so, you know, telling that story was really important, but yes, you're right. Having them tell the story of how it looked from their side, you know, the, um, again, you turn on TV, you turn on cable news and you will just be confronted with this wall of talking heads who work for the government or who formally work for the government or who are elected to office in the government or who want to work for the government one day. And they're telling the institutional corporate you know, establishment, governmental side. We almost never hear the voices of the people who are actually affected by these policies and who the policies are putatively put in place to support, right? The whole point of the PPP loan, the Paycheck Protection Program, was to support businesses like Sandra's and Claudia's, and it didn't. And we heard from so many people, you know, over the course of, uh, of, of the pandemic that, you know, you'd have people trying to get unemployment and they'd be faced with busy signals. You know, they'd have to call over and over again just to get through to their unemployment system. And uh, that, that, that is the failure, right? <laughs> like that should be the main issue. If you are someone working in the government, that is 
a screw up, right? That's a that's bad. But that was almost never covered on television. Almost nobody ever heard that story. Every so often in the nightly news, they'll put someone on for 30 seconds. Oh yeah, I called, got a busy signal. But we never have the, we never get the gut punch of experiencing what this is actually like for the people who are actually the affected by these policies. And so we knew going in when we started the show, we need to tell those stories. We need to hear from those folks and we need to hear them tell their own stories because their experience of the government is what's important because only they can tell us if it's working or not. Yeah. And even, even the dynamic of those conversations as well. I love the intimacy of them. It's not about, you know, someone being prepped to talk to camera. It's about the two of you having a conversation, not necessarily even facing the camera. And so it really feels like we're listening into an intimate conversation and a very real conversation, as opposed to something that's pre-scripted for someone to present on screen. Um, You know, was, was that kind of an important remit going into those conversations or was that something that just naturally happened the first time you stepped on camera with someone that you were speaking with? I mean, the one that we did with Sandra and Claudia, that was actually the first interview that we did. Um, It was the first thing we shot for the entire show. And I was a little bit nervous because it was my first time, you know, doing that kind of segment on television. But, you know, it's always my goal whenever I'm working with people, you know, I host a podcast called Factually. Um, I've, you know, done interviews on Adam Ruins Everything and et cetera. It's my goal to just be a person with the other person, you know, to to not script it too much, to not have it feel too much like television, but just to, you know, be there with them and have that presence just sort of transmit to the person watching on television, you know, to have it to, to really feel it there. So uh, I like to go in and work from the gut, you know, to ask the questions that I am personally most interested in, to react with my genuine reactions when they're talking with me, you know, Um and yeah, that was very important for me tonally. And so I'm really glad that it came across. I mean, we, you know, uh, we only do maybe four or five minutes with Sandra um, on the show, but we spent four hours together. You know, we, we, I talked to her at her home and then the two of us, this didn't make it into the edit, but the two of us drove from her home to her, uh, to, to her former daycare site Um, It was about an hour away. It was a completely different area of Los Angeles. And it was just me and her and her Prius. And we had a couple GoPros set up and we had a mic. um, And we just talked about her life for an hour, you know, about what it's like to run a daycare, about her you know, uh, the, the, the education that she's getting in teaching, um, the, uh, you know, the pressures that she feels from parents, like just getting a feel for like what her life is like and, and what it looks like from her perspective. And, you know, those particular scenes didn't make it to camera. Sorry, didn't make it into the edit, but they were so important in, you know, creating a foundation for our relationship so that when, you know, we were actually looking at the daycare and, you know, I was there with her and, and, you know, it's an emotional moment for her and for me, because now I understand, you know, who she is, what she's about, like how much this means to her. And I'm so proud that that came across on the show and that we were able to tell her a story effectively that way. 
Absolutely. I mean, it's a really memorable segment within the series. And, and also in terms of hosting the show, you know, you were talking previously about when you were hosting Adam Ruins Everything, obviously that was bringing facets and elements of yourself into it, but at the same time was also playing a character for that series. Whereas this, you know, with what you were talking about earlier is, is very much more about bringing your own connection to the material. Were there considerations that, that you had or conversations about what that presentation style was going to be, what your hosting style was going to be, or because it was so much about bringing your own self towards the story, was it just a very natural discovery of what that presentation style was going to be on camera? I mean, you know, we did have conversations about it, but it was very difficult to explain. You know, some of our executive producers are like, what is your style going to be? And I'm like, it's going to be me and I'm going to I'm going to host it. and I'm going to be really honest and genuine. They're like, OK, but what is that going to look like? I'm like, you're just going to have to wait and see it. You know, <laughs> I mean, I wrote it for myself with the help of my writers, but I took the final pass on every script um, and you know, I would read it to myself and, and make sure it sounded right. But, you know, it was a matter of on the day, once we were on set, you know, finding the finding the performance, um, knowing when to dig in, to get a little bit serious, knowing when to play the jokes, etc. But at this point, you know, I've been performing for, for well over a decade, and I sort of have a sense of, of how to do that. Um, and, uh, you know, one of the things I tried to bring into it was myself as a stand-up comic, you know, and Adam ruins everything. I, I again, I was playing a character, but I'm also a stand-up comic. And when you do stand-up, you can't be anybody but yourself. Um, in fact, being a stand-up comic is, in many ways, about trying to figure out how to access yourself on stage. Being, it, it sounds kind of contradictory. How could you have trouble accessing yourself? But in a performance context, it's actually kind of difficult to be yourself. You have to practice doing it because we tend to sort of freeze up and sort of put on a little mask and instead just, you know, like dropping that and just being present with the audience and having your real reaction and being funny in the way that you really are takes practice to sort of find that and know how to how to bring that to the front. And so uh, I would say that I really borrowed my experience doing stand up to to do that. Um, and then. You know, when I was there on set, it was really about, you know, we do a segment on um, uh, the, the botched government response to Hurricane Maria that, you know, we had a hurricane, Hurricane Harvey the same year in Texas, they got massive aid. Hurricane Maria hit a different part of America, Puerto Rico, and thousands of people there died because the government didn't even bring them bottled water. And I was so angry about that when that happened. And when I wrote the script, I was like, I'm going to write some anger into the script too. But then when we were actually recording it, it was a matter of accessing that anger again and saying, like, just bringing it to the front and reminding myself, yeah, I mean, this is, this is terrible. This is a sin that our nation committed to, to allow these people to die, to not look after our fellow Americans in this way. Uh, and so, you know, I just did what I could to, to bring that up. It, it's funny because... It's similar to what an actor does, except an actor is playing a different character. I'm bringing those emotions up, but they're real to me, <laughs> right? It's how I actually feel. Um, and so, yeah, that was a really important part of my uh, of my process and, and something that I'm really glad comes across. 
And one of the other things I always appreciate in the way that you tell stories on screen as well is that you think so specifically about it as a visual medium, which it is in terms of how you're telling the story. So, you know, even if it's a two minute sequence where it's like a period sketch, you know, the costumes are so detailed out, you know, if there's prosthetics, hair, makeup, wigs, all of that information, there's a lot of thought going into like, what's the camera angle that we're using to tell this particular moment. Mm -hmm. And even, you know, again, going back to Adam ruins everything, when you ran a, a self Emmy campaign, that wasn't, you know, I want to win an Emmy. That was the work that everybody on my show does is outstanding and yes. this will help their future career prospects. Um, and so what were the most important visual aspects and how you wanted to create the series and how you wanted to collaborate with all of those department heads? Yeah. I mean, thank you for asking. I, I mean, the show only looks as beautiful as it does and only communicates the ideas as well as it does because of the work of, you know, that entire team of all of our department heads and everybody working underneath them, you know, from the prop master on the our art department, you know, to my director, John Wolf, um, et cetera. Just like it, it is all down the chain. And, you know, I'm I'm often we just had our cast and crew screening and I, I spoke at that about how overwhelming it often is to be the showrunner and the host of a show and to in many ways be the beneficiary or recipient of all that work from all those different people to make the show what it is it, it is often sort of overwhelming it's hard to feel like you deserve it because there's you know the truth is that on any given shoot day there's a hundred artists who are working to make the show look the way it looks um the the main piece of the approach is to have every department working to advance the ideas um so we are always trying to get in those sketches and those uh, comedy explainer pieces we're trying to get across a specific idea um of like this happened and here's why you should care about it and so the most important thing is for everybody on the team to understand what that is and to focus on that one piece you know so um you know, this is not a show that had a large budget. You know, we we were working with a documentary budget, not a, you know, scripted narrative budget at Netflix. And so we had to pick and choose what to focus on. And so, you know, you see we did our um, we did segments set in Teddy Roosevelt's Oval Office. And instead of setting it in, you know, an actual onset Oval Office, we did it on a white psych. But we built out, you know, the Resolute Desk and, and you know, uh, the... Uh, other, you know, his cabinet members, and we had period wardrobe to really sell, okay, this is Teddy Roosevelt, but, you know, in a way that was budget conscious and focused on the pieces that were actually going to tell the story in the most important way. Um, so it's, you know, it's that communication, it's making sure that everybody is on the same page about those things. And most importantly, this is my biggest philosophy as someone who's, you know, works in this intensely collaborative medium where, as much as I can call myself the creator, the showrunner, the host, I'm relying on the creative work of a hundred different artists, right? My main approach is to make sure that every single person on the set feels that this is an environment where they get to do their best work, where they get to say, oh, this is why I joined the industry to begin with. I love creating a prop that tells a story. I love doing visual effects that look create, you know, incredible and unique, and I get to exert my artistry. You know, I, I want the, the DP to think this is where I get to really light this stuff really well, you know, um, because if you empower them to do that, rather than micromanaging and saying, here's how I want it done, I'm not a DP, but here's how I think it should be lit, or we don't have time to do it right. I like to make sure 
I like to ask them, what are the barriers to you doing your job at your highest level? How do we get rid of those barriers and how do we create a space where you get to do the real work, where you go to sleep thinking, this is why I work in this industry. This is why I do this job. Um, that, that's really my, my focus as best I can, I can do it. But, and then apart from that, I cross my fingers and pray, you know, <laughs> because, because you, you have to, you have to trust, you know, you have to trust your, your department heads. You have to tr tr trust the people that you're working with. Um, uh, you know, that's, that's all you can do. Right. Um, and, and we're very fortunate to have an incredible team working on the show who really brought it to life. I really love hearing that that that's the environment. And it's, it's so obvious in watching the show that it's such a, a really high level team collaborative effort to bring it to screen. And, and the way that you've kind of distilled all this information as always is kind of so incredible incredibly done. So congratulations on everything with the series. And thank you so much, Adam. Hey, thank you so much for talking to me about it. You know, wonderful questions. And, and it's a thrill to talk about the show. Thank you so much.